Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll meet Catholic scholar George Weigel, columnist and biographer of Pope John Paul II. We talk about his new book, Not Forgotten, a collection of remembrances of impactful individuals he's met. We also discuss the policy implications of a Biden presidency, our first Catholic president in 60 years. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. George Weigel, in the introduction to your new book, Not Forgotten, you make reference to a famous quote from Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid. How did that particular quote inspire you? Susan, I've been fortunate uh, throughout my life to know a lot of fascinating people, consequential people, people who've left a deep impress on history. Uh, But there are also, uh, in this book, in addition to 10 portraits of those kind of people, some some ordinary people, Uh, my parents, for example. And uh, I think what Mrs. Lohman said in death of a salesman, uh, attention must be paid, is actually not only a a, a deep humanistic truth, it's a deep biblical truth. Uh, Every human person is is an idea of God uh, in the biblical view of the human condition, and that's why attention must be paid. Now, some people leave a deeper impress on, on history or culture, than others. And uh, at a time of so much dumbing down in our culture, in our politics, uh, I wanted to lift up people who ennobled us. So most of the portraits in Not Forgotten uh, are of men and women who uh, lifted up the human spirit, who uh, ennobled the human condition. And I thought people might like to meet folks like that, particularly at this moment in time. Well, stay with that moment in time thing. You've been with us on C-SPAN before talking about some of your past books. And this book is very different in its concept. Why do you think the timing is appropriate for this now as a writer? The timing was, was actually quite accidental, Susan. I've been writing weekly newspaper columns for 42 years now. And I began when I was 28 years old. And uh, it suddenly occurred to me about two years ago that I was writing an awful lot of of reminiscence columns or obituary columns or elegies. And uh, thinking about that, I uh, thought, gee, I've you know, done a lot of these over, over time. And um, a collection of them might make for an interesting book. Uh, it was only when I was putting the book together last year, during what I think many of us recognize was a particularly rancid moment in our public life, that it occurred to me that this book might be a book of encouragement. 
because the public figures in it, as well as the cultural figures, the religious figures, the sports figures, uh, the figures from the entertainment world, uh, were in the main people who lifted our spirits. So I hope that by pulling together and re-editing lightly uh, pen portraits I had drawn of consequential lives uh, over the past few decades, uh, I might actually lift up the hearts uh, of my readers uh, today. There are 68 profiles in your book. Uh, wondering how you made the decision ultimately about who would be included and, and what kinds of folks ended up not being part of the collection. There was really no one excluded. These are about all of the elegiac pieces I've written uh, over the past few decades. Uh, there are a couple of pieces uh, that have not uh, appeared in, in print before. There are um, portraits of my parents, my mother and father, uh, drawn from tributes I gave at their funeral masses. Uh, there is a long portrait of Pope John Paul II's press secretary, uh, Joaquin Navarro Valls, which is appearing in English for the first time. It was written for a uh, collection of reminiscences about him published in his native Spain. So that that's a new one. Uh, but these are, in fact, um, the elegiac uh, or memorial uh, columns and essays uh, I've written over the past few decades. Nobody, no one did not make the cut here. So for the C-SPAN audience, though, the portraits that I, I thought we might draw on are some of the ones most closely connected with the kind of work and coverage that we, we do, including members of Congress that are featured in it. And I should tell folks that we also went into our archives and a few other archives to put some video into the program. So as you spoke about them, we could also see and hear some of these people as a remembrance of them. I want to start with uh, Henry Hyde, former congressman from Illinois. And each of your chapters has a heading on it, on his, it is the Magistry of the Rule of Law. So remind people uh, when Henry Hyde served and why he was significant in, in your taking. Henry Hyde served in Congress from the early 1970s uh, through the early years of, of the new century. He was the undisputed leader of the pro-life legislative forces in Congress for that entire time. He was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment proceedings against President Clinton. And it was in that context that he spoke about uh, the majesty uh, of the rule of, of law. Um, Henry was a, was a singular character. Uh, he was a very large man physically. Uh, he was enormous uh, fun. He was one of the great joke tellers of all time. Uh, he drew respect across the partisan divide for his honesty, his fairness, uh, his integrity as a, as a committee chairman. He was, according to another uh, person memorialized in this book, Cokie uh, Roberts of NPR and, and ABC News, uh, the best spontaneous debater in, in the House of Representatives. Uh, but my my most uh, striking memory of Henry was, I, I think it was Thanksgiving 1986, 
his prostate was acting up. So he was spending Thanksgiving in Georgetown University Hospital. And I went over there early in the afternoon to visit him. And there he was uh, in his room at, in the hospital uh, watching his beloved Chicago Bears play the Detroit Lions in their traditional Thanksgiving uh, game, smoking a six-inch long cigar and with tubes running in and out of him and with a thousand-page biography of the great parliamentarian and uh, defeater of the slave trade, William Wilberforce, on his lap. That was Henry Hyde. He was a man of parts. He would not be able to get away with smoking a cigar in a hospital these days. No, that was a different era. (laughs) Here's the clip that we pulled with him. This is uh, from 2006. Let's watch. And I found myself seated by the pool, reading my notes and drinking in the atmosphere when a tall, willowy young lady in an interesting bathing suit with sunglasses on her pretty forehead walked up to me and said, aren't you Henry Hyde? Well, I preened a little and I said, why, yes, expectantly. She said, well, I want you to know, I think it's tragic that a man like you has any power at all in our government. (laughs) I also, during the impeachment, was driving down Route 7, and a woman in the next car rolled her window down, so I put my window down, and at the top of her lungs, she screamed, I hope God strikes you dead. (laughs) These little things keep you humble. George Weigel, is that classic Henry Hyde? That, that's, that's classic Henry Hyde. The other story from that Thanksgiving uh, episode in 86 was I said, have you had many visitors? He said, yes. This guy came in who I think wants to run for my seat. And I said, well, what did you say to him? And Henry said, I said to him, the last words you're ever going to hear from me are, get your foot off the oxygen hose. <laughs> Henry Hyde is the author of an amendment that bears his name, the Hyde Amendment, which people who follow Congress often hear reference to. What does it do? The Hyde Amendment prevents the federal government from uh, using its financial resources to support abortion, uh, either domestically or in its foreign aid uh, programs. Um, That, to Henry, was a way of honoring the conscientious convictions of, of pro-life uh, Americans, um, and it was one of his great uh, legislative uh, achievements. Are you anticipating that there'll be an effort to overturn the, the Hyde Amendment in this Congress? I, I'm sure there will be, and I devoutly hope that it fails. In the chapter about Henry Hyde, you have this quote from him. If you don't know what you're prepared to lose your seat for, you're going to do a lot of damage up here. You have to know what you're willing to lose everything for if you're going to be the kind of member of Congress this country needs. Do you think when you look at the Congress today that it's full of people willing to give up their seat for things they believe in? I think that's a big difference between Henry's day or the day of another great figure in here from the other side of the partisan aisle, Scoop Jackson, uh, with whom I also worked. Uh, that's that's a big difference between their time and this time. Uh, politics has become too much today, I'm afraid, a question of performance art 
Uh, people go into public life in order to perform, whether that's on television or radio or Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Henry Hyde, Scoop Jackson, Sergeant Shriver, another of my portraits here, uh, Lindy Boggs, a longtime member of Congress. These were people who went into public life and public service to get things done. And some of them were sparkling speakers and wits like Henry Hyde. Some of them were door Norwegians like Scoop Jackson. Uh, some of them were utter charmers like Lindy Boggs, but they were all people who wanted to achieve things, not so much for themselves, but for their country, for their constituents, for the common good. And I think all of them would be a bit upset, even appalled, at the transformation of politics into performance art uh, in the last decade, in the, particularly in the last five years uh, in the United States. What impact on society does that have? It cheapens what ought to be a noble uh, enterprise. A democratic self-governance ought to be a noble thing. It's become cheapened. Uh, the lifeblood of democracy, which is serious, rational debate among serious people across what can often be serious differences, uh, has been uh, displaced by snarkiness, uh, and cheap shotting, uh, and frankly, a lot of balderdash and nonsense. Uh, I remember in the early days of Twitter, uh, a Washington political commentator whom I will not name, uh, about uh, with whom I agreed on virtually nothing, said something extremely wise about Twitter. He said 180 characters are inherently demagogic. Uh, and that's true. And I don't care whether you boost it to 250 characters or 300 or whatever. Uh, the truth of that observation uh, was certainly displayed by the 45th president of the United States and all of those who responded to him in kind. Uh, this is not what James Madison had in mind when he helped draft the Constitution. So just staying with that for a moment, is the answer to that limiting people who have access as the, the case of Twitter with President Trump? No, I don't think so. I think the, the, the answer is for the American people to grow up a bit, to stop looking at politics as entertainment, to look elsewhere for entertainment, uh, and to demand of public officials a level of seriousness uh, that we are not demanding of them. The next profile uh, chosen from your book is of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, New York, and the other side of the aisle from Henry Hyde. Give, uh, give me a quick snapshot of who he was for people who are too young to, to know or remember. Pat Moynihan uh, was the only man in the history of the United States to serve in cabinet or sub-cabinet positions under four consecutive administrations, both Democratic and Republican. He was a social scientist by professional training and one of the most consequential uh, social scientists of our time, a man whose intellectual ideas really worked their way into the texture of our public life, particularly in terms of welfare reform. He was a bold and courageous defender of democracy and human rights, uh, particularly in the mid-1970s. 
when there was a real reticence about uh, criticizing communist governments for their human rights abuses. Uh, Pat Moynihan, as U.S. ambassador to the uh, United Nations, uh, boldly defended the democratic project, defended the state of Israel. Uh, he was a great character, uh, an Irish wit of, uh, not unlike Henry Hyde, of considerable uh, consequence. He served, I believe, four terms uh, in the United States Senate uh, from the state of New York. Um, uh, I did. Pat and I did not know each other that well. We, we didn't know each other over a period of 25 years or so. Um, he was the kind of serious intellectual in public life that that we need more of uh, today. From that long public life, we could have had many, many options of clips to pick. The one we chose actually was from his early work in the area of African-Americans uh, in society and the economic challenges they face. This is from Meet the Press in 1965. There are a great many Negro Americans, perhaps half uh, the population is is securely in the middle class, doing very well, taking care of itself, needing no help from anybody. Thank you very much. But the slums are also filling up with a, a lower class people, unemployed, ill-educated, ill-housed, for whom the cycle of no jobs and bad education and bad housing just reproduces itself in a, uh, and takes its most poignant personal form in the great tragedy of the family lives of these men and women and of their children. What, uh, how was his work in this area received in the public sphere? It caused an enormous controversy, uh, of course, Susan. Uh, but I think that history has really vindicated uh, Pat Moynihan uh, in his analysis of the, the really terrible effects of both slavery, but also Jim Crow and, and legalized segregation on, on the black family in the United States. The, the breakdown of family structure uh, has had a, a terrible effect on our African-American fellow citizens. It's helped destroy large swaths of uh, inner city areas. Um, and while Pat could probably have better uh, chosen a, a could probably have chosen uh, a better phrase than benign neglect to uh, uh, encapsulate his view of the fact that government intervention was making matters worse rather than better in some inner city areas and was exacerbating these problems of, of family breakdown. Um, the, the failure of great society uh, programs, uh, which has now been pretty well studied, uh, was something that he, he saw into and had the courage to uh, speak to. Um, uh, Pat was a truth teller and perhaps his most memorable line uh, George Will quotes it frequently they were great friends although uh, often divided politically Pat said everyone is entitled to his own opinion but no one is entitled to their own facts and he was a fact driven 
social scientist. And I'm afraid uh, he would be uh, disconcerted, uh, depressed, uh, dismayed by the degree to which ideological posturing has replaced fact-driven analysis of our national social problems. It was Pat who also coined the phrase dumbing deviancy down uh, to excuse all sorts of behaviors that were not only destructive of individuals, but but of of communities. Uh, So he was something of a prophet without honor in that uh, field of social science. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Would his voice be welcomed in the great debate that has emerged over the past year in the wake of George Floyd's killing and the Black Lives Matter movement? I think Pat Moynihan would probably be canceled on a lot of campuses today, and that's a tragedy, because he would recognize the need for reforming policing procedures. Uh, He would recognize the need for supporting in whatever ways can be found to work, the rebuilding of of family life uh, across our society. Uh, And I think he would be quite upset that uh, on its, in its statement of purpose, uh, as I've read it, Black Lives Matter states that one of its goals is the deconstruction uh, of the nuclear family. Pat Moynihan knew that was very bad for people and very bad for poor people in particular. Your title, uh, chapter on him is titled The Great Catholic What If. What did you mean by that? Um, I and many others hoped that, that Pat would run for president some time. Uh, Pat knew the social doctrine of the Catholic Church very well. Uh, that striking body of thought that's really neither liberal nor conservative, it's somehow ahead of our uh, conventional political categories, and a body of thought that stresses both the rights of individuals and the common good that emphasizes the importance of social solidarity, but is very uh, nervous about concentrations of power, whether those are governmental concentrations of power, big business, uh, big labor, whatever. Uh, a tradition of thought that, that values local communities, families, et cetera. Pat Moynihan understood all of that uh, and, and might have brought it to bear in a singular way uh, in our in our public life. Uh, he could never bring himself uh, to run for president. Um, he uh, was very uh, nervous about the abortion issue, uh, I think in part because he was representing the state of New York in the Senate and the New York Times, which never liked Pat Moynihan uh, from the days when he was defending the United States. Mm-hmm at the UN till uh, he retired from the Senate, was keeping a very close uh, eye on him. He did bring himself at the end of his career to vote against so-called partial birth abortion, which he claimed correctly was uh, 
perilously close to infanticide. I would say it's not perilously close to infanticide. I would say it is infanticide. Um, but uh, the fact that that Pat never had a national uh, political role, uh, this man who had who was both, a, as I say, a highly accomplished social scientist, a data-driven social scientist, and someone with a vision of, of the individual and society uh, that was quite compelling, that he never uh, achieved a national political role, I, I regard as a great lost opportunity. Could candidates with a profile like that, a, a public intellectual, data-driven, be successful in the way we elect presidents today? It's hard to imagine it, isn't it, Susan? Uh, although I like to think that if someone, I think particularly of Mitch Daniels, um, former governor of Indiana, former OMB director, currently president of Purdue University, occasional Washington Post columnist, somebody who talks up to the American people, not down, somebody who lifts up um, aspiration. Um, somebody like that might be able to break through uh, the clutter of the Twitterverse, um, perhaps uh, because people are going to get tired of it after a while. Uh, I, I mean, I just find this constant exchange of snark uh, to be exhausting. And at a certain point, I suspect others are going to feel that, too. But right now, it's a tough haul. And um, uh, I have to say that I think the way we structure presidential debates uh, is not helpful. Um, uh, the short answer, okay, you, senator, governor, uh, you, have, you have 90 seconds. Well, I mean, Lincoln and Douglas took a lot longer than 90 seconds to articulate serious ideas. And we don't have to have five-hour, two-man debates like, like they did in, in 1856. Uh, uh, but we ought to be able to do better. Uh, we ought to be able to create fora uh, in which those who seek to lead us can really lay out uh, a vision of uh, the American community of the future in something other than sound bites. We're talking uh, about your book, Not Forgotten, and some of the people profiled in it. The next are two people that you have already made reference to. Let's listen to Cokie Roberts talking about her mother, uh, Lindy Boggs, and this was from C-SPAN in, in 2015. Women lost their credit when they lost their husbands, and um, either because the husband died or he took off with some chippy, and... Um, so my mother went to Congress uh, in March of 73, as I said, and went on to the banking committee, and they were uh, considering a bill to end discrimination in lending, and it said on the basis of race, creed, or national origin. And as Mama told the story, she just went into the back room and wrote in in longhand, or sex or marital status, and Xeroxed it and brought it in to the members of the committee and said in her very polite Southern way, oh, I'm sure that my colleagues just omitted this by accident. And that, of course, is how women got credit. 
George Weigel, you tell a story of a later time in Lindy Boggs's life after she left Congress and was considering an appointment as the, uh, the U.S. representative to the Holy See, the uh, ambassadorship. Uh, what's the story? Well, let me let me begin by saying, Susan, that that uh, story from Cokie is classic Lindy Boggs, and it's an example of what I meant a moment ago by serious people getting serious stuff done. She didn't run out in front of the House of Representatives and hold a press conference. Uh, she didn't start sending out tweets, although they didn't exist in those days. Um, she simply got it done and, and did it by persuasion. Uh, the story I tell in the book uh, involves the attempt by the Clinton administration to nominate her to be the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. Uh, there's a backstory to this that I will simply summarize by saying the administration had floated two other names that the Vatican had found unacceptable. So um, the administration said, okay, you don't like what we're going to, we wanted to send you. How about this? I think Lindy was 81 at that point, uh, 81 year old former member of Congress, you know, it was a bit of payback. Uh, Lindy was not going to accept. She was, um, she had just retired from from uh, Congress. She was looking forward to getting back to New Orleans and uh, relaxing a bit. Uh, so she told Cokie, her daughter, uh, that she was going to turn this down. And Cokie said, come on, Mom, it's the two things you like m doing most in the world, going to mass and going to parties. And I don't know whether that did the trick, but uh, Lindy accepted and then did a spectacularly good job at repairing what had become uh, broken lines of communication between uh, the Vatican and uh, the uh, government in, in Washington. Uh, she was a woman of, of great charm, but also great consequence. She had real ideas. Um, as I mentioned in the in the profile of her, uh, she invited me to see her shortly after she arrived in, in Rome and said, you know, what's going on here? I said, well, it's a big mess. Um, uh, but I would suggest that you dedicate your time here to finding three things that you can work on together with the Vatican, that the administration can work on together with the Vatican. And we quickly agreed that those would be international religious freedom, the sex trafficking of uh, girls and women, and the impacts of technology on, on society. So she stayed focused on that. Uh, the relationship was repaired, uh, and she left the embassy uh, to the Vatican in far better shape uh, than she had found it. Uh, in 1997. The next is an opinion writer, uh, as and someone from your field. It is Charles Krauthammer. Uh, this is a clip from him, also for C-SPAN Archives, 2005. Let's listen. I once said to a friend, I don't believe in God, but I, f I fear him greatly. So uh, I'm rather impressed by the fact that the, 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 the universe is inexplicable in any terms in which we understand so there's something out there that we don't 
that induces a little humility, and uh, and that's theologically I try to remain humble because I don't understand it. Do you take a risk when you say something like that with your conservative constituency? I'm not worried about risks. I've always, when I when I went into journalism, I decided this is what I wanted to do. The point of it was to say what I believed, and I didn't really care one way or the other how people would react. Otherwise, I'd still uh, be a doctor. It's an easier life, and I don't have to take those risks. George Weigel, your reaction to hearing him? <laughs> that, was, that was classic Charles. I used to tell him I think he protested too much uh, in this matter. He was a deeply serious Jewish intellectual. Uh, he had a complicated relationship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Uh, I never really argued theology with Charles, but what he just said there, the fact that we know we live in an ordered universe, uh, bespeaks some reality that created that order. Charles would have been thrilled at the landing of the Perseverance rover on uh, on Mars. Both he and I were space nuts and, and used to talk about that all the time. Well, th the reason why we can send uh, a human artifact 292 million miles landed on a dime in a hostile environment is because there is an order in the universe. There's a mathematical order, there's an order in the physical world. And that bespeaks something other than randomness and happenstance. And I think uh, Charles understood, and his deeply humane character reflected this, that when we think of ourselves as simply uh, the byproducts of random cosmic biochemical processes. Uh, we demean ourselves. There's more to human beings than that. And uh, he understood that. Uh, and I think that understanding was the source of another of the cardinal virtues that he exemplified, which was courage. Um, Charles lived most of his life, virtually all of his adult life, in a wheelchair. Uh, with a with a grave physical disability, made even more poignant by the fact that he was a terrific athlete uh, as a youth. I think he almost made the Canadian Olympic skiing team uh, as as a young man. Uh, and for someone like that to have this horrible accident, be paralyzed the way he was, uh, not to complain about it, to get on with first completing a medical degree at Harvard, being the chief psychiatric resident at Massachusetts General Hospital, then uh, enormously influential and uh, successful career in, in public life as a writer, a television personality. Th this, was an ex this was an example of courage that uh, I, I just found uh, inspiring. To, to be with Charles when he was driving this special van that had been rigged up so that he could he could drive uh, and watch him park this thing in a small uh, parking space uh, 
um, was was to watch courage at work as well as remarkable technology. Uh, and it was every bit as courageous as the public stands that he he took for so many years. I there isn't a Friday morning since his death when I have not opened the Washington Post and missed Charles being there. I'm going to do just one more, and this seemed appropriate with spring training underway, a COVID era spring training, and that's Jackie Robinson. Uh, the appropriate title for his chapter is The Pioneer. Let's listen to him back in 1972 on the Dick Cavett Show uh, talking about uh, his career. The team members, was this while you were on, when you came onto the field that they would yell things, or was it while the game was going on? I mean, could some of it have been just strategy to help? Well, they thought, I'm sure that a lot of it was thought to be strategy, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it wasn't going to upset me. There was really too much to be done at that particular time in terms of breaking the baseball barrier to allow uh, name-calling to bother me. I keep remembering what my mother told me when I was a kid, although... I've always been a guy that turned back. She said something about sticks and stones will break your bones, you know, and so mm-hmm. not to be concerned about it. Well, I didn't at the time, uh, and fortunate for the advice that uh, I got from Mr. Rickey and the, the encouragement and the guidance I got from my wife at home, we were able to to withstand most of the kinds of situations that came up. We were prepared because of the numbers of people on our side. Yeah. George Weigel, that particular clip seems to encapsulate the eulogy that you wrote for him and appears in your book. It does, Susan. Uh, I never had the privilege of watching Jackie Robinson uh, play. He retired when I was five years old, so I miss the great pleasure of watching him. I've I've watched a lot of grainy video of him. Uh, As I say in the reminiscence or eulogy for him, uh, people usually talk about three great moments, uh, three iconic moments in the struggle for uh, African-American civil rights in the modern era. Um, Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court's desegregation decision of 1954, the 1963 March on Washington, and Dr. King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, and then the uh, assault on the civil rights marchers on the Uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, in which, by the way, another figure in my album of memories, Father Richard John Newhouse, uh, participated as a civil rights activist. But I I said there's a fourth moment, and that's 1947, when when Jackie Robinson breaks the infamous color line in baseball. Baseball in the late 1940s held a cultural position in the United States that is almost unimaginable today. Uh, It was the national pastime. It it defined the country uh, in a way. Jacques Barzun, the uh, native Frenchman who came to the United States and taught humanities for years at Columbia, used to say, if you want to understand the United States, you'd better understand baseball. That's a Frenchman talking. Well, for Jackie Robinson to break the color line and not only do that, but to put up with this obscene, uh, wretched, uh, mindless abuse from opponents, from fans, uh, to keep his mouth shut and to get on with playing some of the most exciting baseball in the history of the sport, uh, this is a Homeric accomplishment. This is really something out of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, And to the end of his life, 
uh, Jackie Robinson believed in an integrated America, not an America siloed into uh, different gangs by by race. And uh, he died far too young, uh, I think in part because of the physical stress he was under during his entire uh, major league uh, career. He's a genuine American hero. Uh, in my office, uh, on my office computer, I have two of the Jackie Robinson commemorative stamps uh, issued many years ago by the Postal Service, uh, which are there as a reminder to me of his vision of the United States uh, as a fully integrated society. Uh, his courage and his grace under pressure. I noticed that a number of your chapters describe you going with someone to uh, Orioles Park in Baltimore. Um, I'm wondering, who's your team these days? Who who do you support? Oh, I'm a long-suffering Orioles fan. It's been it's been a wretched couple of decades. Uh, but you know, you dance with the girl that brung you. And I grew up uh, loving baseball in Baltimore in the 1950s. My my grandfather, Weigel, was my mentor in matters uh, baseball. Uh, I attended the last game of the 1966 World Series in Old Memorial Stadium with him as the, as the Orioles swept the Dodgers in, in four games. I watched another one of my heroes in this book, Frank Robinson, win that game with a lightning bolt of a line drive home run into the left field stands. Memorial Stadium. So, yeah, I'm a long-suffering Orioles fan, looking forward to a very long season, I'm afraid, in 2021. Do you see any uh, heroic figures across baseball today? Um, Yeah, actually, they don't quite have the depth of character, perhaps, that that some of these men I, I profile in my book do. But there's an extraordinary level of skill in 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 baseball uh, today. Uh, um, before things went really bad for the Houston Astros, uh, or were known to have gone really bad, uh, I watched Garrett Cole, who's now with the Yankees, uh, pitch a one hitter at Minute Maid Park in, in Houston, and it was it was simply uh, masterful. Uh, That kind of skill level, what you see in a man like Mike Trout, who also seems to be a thoroughly uh, decent human being. Um, Baseball on the field uh, is as good as ever. Um, I I worry that tinkering with baseball, as the present commissioner seems determined to do, um, is going to create real problems down the line. Uh, but I was, I was watching it last uh, summer and fall, uh, as usual, though totally on, on television. And I expect uh, to be doing the same this year. Although I hope to actually get into a ballpark or two this year. We all hope so, don't we? We have about fifteen minutes. <clears throat> excuse me, fifteen minutes left in our conversation. I wanted to segue into the public policy area, uh, starting with the work that you do at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Can you uh, tell me more about what it does and specifically what your role there is? Uh, The Ethics and Public Policy Center, which I had the honor to lead as its president from 1989 to uh, 
1996, is, is the big religion and society think tank in Washington. There are all kinds of think tanks in Washington uh, across the spectrum of political opinion. Uh, EPPC is the religion and society think tank. It's an interreligious and ecumenical gathering, collegium, if you of scholars who want to think seriously about public policy through uh, classic political philosophy uh, and the biblical tradition. Uh, we are Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. Uh, we address virtually uh, every issue of, of public policy uh, imaginable. Um, uh, we are now led uh, just for the past month by a brilliant young scholar, uh, Ryan Anderson, his predecessor, Ed Whalen, uh, who was president of the Center for 17 years, uh, is one of the foremost uh, commentators on on the American judiciary uh, in the country today. Uh, it's a it's it's a remarkable group of colleagues whom I've been privileged to work with for over uh, over thirty years. Uh, my role is uh, curiously uh, for someone who who became the president of the place at age thirty eight. Uh, I'm now the old man. Um, I'm 69 years old. Uh, I'm the elder uh, in the gang, although there is one, we have one senior fellow who is older than I am, Lance Morrow, worked for many years at Time Magazine, but Lance works from home in, in upstate uh, New York. So on site, I'm, I'm, I'm the old guy. Uh, my work has focused uh, increasingly uh, over the past two and a half decades on the Catholic Church, on its reform, on its role in uh, public life. Um, I left the presidency of the center in 1996 uh, in order to write uh, the first of my two-volume uh, biography of Pope St. John Paul II. Uh, did that as a senior fellow of the center and have now become so old that I'm called a distinguished senior fellow. <laughs> so uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful group of colleagues uh, getting younger these days, which is which is good. And I think uh, respected within the uh, Washington community and the broader national community for the seriousness of, of, of what we do. We're not into a lot of tweeting and snark. We're into serious stuff. Earlier, you mentioned the importance of data, and just <clears throat> looking at Washington today, uh, Catholics hold the White House. They have 30 percent of the 117th Congress, including the speakership and including Senator Joe Manchin, who will be the swing vote in this uh, Senate, uh, and two-thirds of the Supreme Court. What does that mean for the kinds of issues that you care about? doesn't mean a whole lot, actually. Um, President Biden uh, is a man of obvious personal piety, but uh, the teaching of the Catholic Church on uh, grave issues of public policy does not seem to have made much of an impression uh, on him, particularly on the life issues, the nature of the human person. Uh, the same holds true for my fellow ex-Baltimorean, uh, Speaker Pelosi, whose father was the mayor of Baltimore when I, when I was a boy. Um, 
Justice Thomas, Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, uh, Justice Alito. The, these are serious jurists of a particular uh, judicial philosophy. Uh, they're not imposing their Catholicity on, on anybody. Uh, they are bringing, I think all of them, uh, a deep sense of, of public service that is undoubtedly informed by their sense of commitment to the common good, the second great principle of Catholic social doctrine, uh, to their work. Um, it's very difficult uh, to predict uh, voting patterns in, in Congress based on uh, religious affiliation. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is, is actually a demographic reality. Uh, second, third, fourth, and fifth generation Catholics, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren of, of immigrants coming to the fore in American public life. Uh, that's been the pattern throughout our national history. Um, uh, but uh, I don't think uh, one can read uh, public policy positions off of anyone's uh, declaration of their religious affiliation in our public life today. Uh, further, what should we take away from the fact that the Catholic vote in the presidential election was almost exactly split between the two candidates? Susan, I've been saying for 25, 30 years, there really isn't any such thing as the Catholic vote. Uh, there are some 70, maybe 75 million, maybe even 80 million Catholics in the United States. Their voting patterns tend to um, follow their degree of religious practice. Catholics who attend Mass weekly, or at least when we were able to, um, tend to skew heavily uh, Republican. Catholics who are what we sometimes call Christmas and Easter Catholics, uh, who only attend Mass very rarely, uh, tend to skew heavily Democratic, and the scale slides in between. So if you're a monthly Mass attendant, you might skew a little more uh, Republican. Uh, if you are a four or five times a year uh, Catholic, you might skew more heavily Democratic. As far as I'm aware, that's been the truth of the Catholic vote. Uh, really since 1972. So there's no, to talk about an aggregate Catholic vote doesn't really get you anywhere. You have to talk about who are the Catholics who are in church on a regular basis and who are the Catholics who aren't in church on a regular basis. And then you begin to see some patterns emerging. On the Friday of the week that we're taping, Pope Francis is going to be taking his first trip in, I guess, about 15 months to a country that has consumed a great deal of U.S. foreign policy over the past two decades, Iraq. Uh, what do you think about the, this trip and what it might accomplish? I, I, think, why, I think the Pope is going uh, at considerable risk, both health-wise and security-wise, because, first of all, he wants to support and encourage the remaining Christian communities, not just Catholic, but Christian communities uh, in Iraq. There has been a tremendous out-migration of Christians from Iraq uh, since 2003, 2004. Uh, those who remain 
uh, some of whom can trace their Christian origins back to the first or second century AD, uh, are not being sufficiently protected uh, by the present Iraqi government from either uh, Sunni or Shia uh, Islamic uh, radicals and, and fanatics. So I think the Pope wants to support them. I think he wants to say to the present Iraqi government, you have got to facilitate the process of interreligious reconciliation and tolerance if you're going to have a stable, prosperous society, and you'd better get on with it. Uh, if he can manage to uh, encourage the Christian communities that remain, particularly in the Nineveh Plain uh, in Iraq, and, and deliver a punch, frankly, where it's needed uh, with the present uh, Iraqi government, uh, that'll be enough accomplishment for, uh, for one four-day trip. Next topic, a big one. We have about five or six minutes left, and that is uh, back here at home, uh, the church dealing with the ongoing clergy sexual abuse scandal. You've written a column recently about uh, what the next pope needs to worry about, and this was one of the issues you highlighted. What does the church need to do further in regard of, of dealing with this issue? The first thing to recognize, Susan, is that the church has done a, a lot over the past 20 years to deal with this. The Catholic Church today, and I think this can be demonstrated empirically, is likely the safest environment for children in the United States. It's far safer than, than public schools in the days when public schools were, were open. So a lot of progress in creating safe environments has been made. Uh, continual progress needs to be made in screening uh, candidates for the priesthood. Uh, that was a huge problem in the 1970s and 1980s that eventually led to the abuses that were brought to light beginning in, in 2002. Uh, the curve of, of, of abuse has been bent very, very strongly down. Uh, even as, I'm afraid, this societal plague of the sexual abuse of the young continues in other, other parts of our society. Uh, but the church has made great, great strides in addressing these terrible crimes and sins. And I think, frankly, the church has a lot to teach the rest of society, although the imagery that has been created is such that uh, that is often difficult uh, to see uh, and for the church uh, to do. In the, our last few minutes, I want to circle back to your book, Not Forgotten. Uh, so many of us don't have the opportunity, like the people you profile, to live uh, public lives or have careers uh, that automatically lend themselves to influence in the public sphere. So what lessons do you think there are in your pages for uh, everyday people about how to live a life of consequence? Uh, Susan, that's one of the reasons, uh, aside from a sense of filial piety, that I included uh, the tributes I paid to my mother and father at their funeral masses and the column I wrote about my late son-in-law, Robert Susel, uh, when he died at age uh, 34. Um, my parents were essentially private people. I mean, they were good citizens. They 
voted. They took public life seriously, but they were not public people. Uh, and yet they, uh, my father was a World War II veteran, a naval officer in the Pacific. My mother was a uh, career girl, as they were known in the, in the 1930s, uh, long before that became uh, popular. Uh, they exemplify commitment to marriage and the family, commitment to children, commitment to community, uh, until my father began to suffer severely from a rapidly developing uh, dementia. He was uh, helping teach illiterate inner city kids to read, and he was doing Meals on Wheels uh, deliveries. The, these, were, these were good people. My, my son-in-law uh, was arguably the most brilliant young cancer scientist in the country who died of cancer at age 34. And at his wake, uh, one of his mentors at Johns Hopkins said to me, we just lost our next Nobel Prize. He exemplifies uh, great courage under pressure. Uh, he lived his life to the full until the very end. And uh, yet he was not a public figure. He's a figure of intellectual consequence. I think people are still reading his research work. Uh, but that's one of the reasons I included uh, three members of my family uh, in this album of uh, portraits. I think what the, the publicly consequential people, the, the publicly fascinating people, the celebrities, if you will, in this book teach all of us uh, is that vocational living, living for uh, a purpose larger than ourselves, is, is really the royal road to human flourishing, uh, to happiness, uh, to satisfaction. Uh, and uh, if my readers are encouraged by meeting these people and, and drawing a vocational lesson from that, even, it's, even if it's to a vocation that no one except one's immediate circle will know about, uh, then the book will have served a good purpose. The book is called Not Forgotten. George Weigel, thank you very much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.